Testing, checking, check, testing. Need a little more. Need a little more. Let's go 75. Everywhere. Da 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 da. Bada 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 bada. Welcome to Unchanging Education with Dan Clemens. Today I'm focusing on Bagley, and I think this will be a longer episode. Dealing with pedagogical material circa 1940. Dewey and Bagley debated over the subjective and objective nature of education, with Dewey promoting the subjective student-centered, known as progressivism, and Bagley championing the objective essentialism or perennialism. Bagley would say essentialism and progressivism are two schools of education theory that have been in conflict for centuries. And about 90 years later here, I might say something like, well, maybe they had been in conflict. And this refers to the whole spirit of the entire problem about how dominant um, the Deweyan subjective student-centered model has completely dominated education to where it's no longer um, heterodoxical. It's much more of an orthodoxy. So the goal, as you know, is to bring back this genuine conflict or debate. Quoting Bagley here for the first time. Herein lies an educational problem of the first magnitude, which our educational theorists seem to not even dimly have sensed. So busy have they been in condemning, out of hand, the economic system, which has made possible an economy of abundance. So even going back so far, I want to give some attention to this idea that almost strangely, and Begley is sensing this, that educational theorists almost seem barely interested in education. They haven't really even sensed like the big or the biggest problems or or in some way they're not really interested in it, in them. Instead, their main focus seems to be on some sort of economic critique, basically a critique of capitalism. That educational theorists for a very long time now have been strangely, I think, anti-capitalist. Or you might even say pro-communist, if we want to posit those as a, as, a, as a duality. And it's, it's, it's really not clear why that is the case. I think, I mean, it just would have to be based on this idea that education has to be doing social reform. And how do we reform society? And, and I think always this, this promise of a critique 
or, or condemning the current economic system is usually something to do with equality. Again, taking us back to Rousseau and Locke, this sort of great-grandfather figures. And the contest between liberty and equality that I think is in, on, in some way, or it's at least one way to think about the philosophical bedrock between these two. So again, let me just reiterate that the, the teacher-centered lineage from Locke with an emphasis on liberty to Bagley, right, from sort of great-grandfather Locke to grandfather Bagley. And it's hard to say really who I think the father of teacher-centered is, but for now, at least provisionally, I'm going to posit Philip Reif, who I'll come to eventually. And then the student-centered lineage from great-grandfather Rousseau, with an emphasis on liberty, even at the exp sorry, Rousseau with an emphasis on equality, even at the expense of liberty. And then opposite of Bagley as the grandfather figure in student-centered education, Dewey. And then I think I'm going to have to suggest that uh, Freire, I'm going to switch back to the anglicized uh, pronunciation. Um, Freire being the father of student-centered education now. So instead of attempting to resolve teacher versus student-centeredness and trying to, you know, work out educational theories um, that are sort of encompassing of Something like the best ideas from essentialism and from progressivism. Not necessarily a synthesis of the two, but at least uh, a coexistence. Pedagogues have been content in the main just to be anti-capitalist. I think that's what Begley is suggesting here. So similar to perennialism, essentialism is kind of a... Basically, I'm using that as sort of an older word but also largely synonymous with teacher-centered. Essentialism stresses the essential knowledge and skills that productive citizens should have. Theories that emphasized freedom, immediate needs, personal interest, and which in so doing tended to discredit their opposites, effort, discipline, and remote goals, naturally made a powerful appeal. So here we are getting into some of the educational uh, details. And there is this sense that he's setting up right away, this contrast, um, progressivism and essentialism, or teacher-centered and student-centered, that student-centeredness emphasizes these things like freedom and immediate needs and personal interest. And it is against in a, an educational paradigm that instead of freedom emphasizes effort and instead of immediate needs emphasizes discipline and instead of personal interests remote goals so what exactly does that mean that there's a sense in the sort of new way of thinking about education is that it should in a sense be effortless and unrestrained so free and creative and it should to some extent offer a lot of immediate gratification certainly we see this in how education 
has become has adopted many features of entertainment where I know like some teachers consider themselves edutainers and that the sort of the best thing that you can do is to get students attention the way that media functions. So I'm going to do kind of a, a brief overview and then I'm going to get into more details. There'll be some redundancies. So the first major point that Bagley makes here is what he calls effort against interest. So reading, progressives have given the primary emphasis to interest and have maintained that interest in solving a problem or in realizing a purpose generates effort. Essentialists would recognize clearly enough the motivating force of interest, but would maintain that many interests and practically all the higher and more nearly permanent interests grow out of efforts to learn that are not at the outset interesting or appealing in themselves. So I'm sure it's likely that in the audience um, that you'd be familiar with this idea that, well, if you want kids to give effort, you have to give them something interesting, right? That effort will follow interest. Mostly today, in a contemporary sense, this manifests as relevance, right? If it's relevant, if it's interesting to them, then they'll try hard. That's what we mean by effort. But the problem that's being introduced here is that, well, thinking about the big picture or thinking long term, what if a lot of the things that young people might be interested in and, and thus willing to devote effort to don't really have a lot of long-term value. And what if things that they may seem uninterested in or unwilling to, to, to try hard at or work hard at might actually have much more benefit, much more value? So the idea here is, in a, in a sense, to separate effort and interest. And there's really no way to do this without some sense of discipline that to start to cultivate the capacity to devote considerable effort to something that may not interest you. As we all have to do. Or you can't say, well, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not really that interested in, in, you know, doing a lot of the things that I need to do. Therefore, I'm, I'm not going to do them. I'm not going to, you know, uh, apply effort to them. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with a sense of duty or obligation or, or even just deriving a sense of meaning from something even if it doesn't meet your or suit your personal interests per se another uh, great point here back to Bagley adult responsibility for the guidance and direction of the immature generation of young people is inherent in human nature that it is indeed the real meaning of the prolonged period of necessary dependence upon the part of the offspring for adult care and support. So, Bailey is you know appealing to human nature here in saying that you know th there's this really long period of dependency that humans have, right, compared to other mammals, and so this long period of dependency necessitates you know a, a a great responsibility that we have for for young people. 
and how can we make this long period of of dependency um how can we make it useful and, and valuable to us as a as a culture and bigger than that in terms of civilization well i saying we, we have to guide and direct them that is what we have to do as the mature generation is as teachers or parents or as adults in general and i think he's sensing that progressivism or student-centeredness it's in a strange way he's worried that it's opting out of this adult mature responsibility saying that well no we're we're not going to guide and direct the young and he sees that as in a way um it deviates from human nature or from what human nature dictates to let students or young people to let the immature or the immature generation not immature in a pejorative sense just descriptively that you know you've got young and old you've got the mature and the immature generation at any time and that if we opt out of guiding and directing and letting them self-guide and self-direct then we're being irresponsible and probably breeding more irresponsibility this responsibility with its correlative duty of discipline is distinctly a product of civilization the progressives imply that quote child freedom they advocate for uh, the child freedom they advocate is new whereas in a real sense it is a return to the conditions of pre-modern social life so from human nature to another another big concept here of civilization uh, the way that civilization makes this prolonged period of dependence right as part of human nature is that we have this basically the great invention of educating and schooling guiding and directing and basically just because civilization like sort of advanced and organized societies um there's just a lot more that has to be passed on and learned and understood to become a part of it whereas in a pre-modern um you know a, more of a uh our like sort of historical ancestors that their societies their their social life was a lot simpler something like you know hunter-gatherer early agrarian type societies so responsibility and duty this is like this is essential to civilization so this this is going to be a bit of a motif that the progressive and the student-centered uh, breed think that what they're doing is really cutting edge right that this these are completely new ideas education has been the same way for a long long time and now we need to you know we need new fresh ideas and he's saying this is just going back to basically before advanced organized society where certainly you know young people would need to grow up and learn the essential skills um but you know they wouldn't need to learn about 
you know, subjects like, you know, you know math, English, science, etc. So it's a return to pre-modern social life where children just have considerable freedom, where their, their period of dependence is just sort of accepted as uh, almost as kind of a, a latent time where young people, you know, they're, they're not really, you know, they're not really useful. They're just dependent and they kind of follow their own inclinations much more. So he's just saying that this is not really progressive at all, right? Child freedom, uh, freedom, immediate needs, personal interest, you know, to, to be to be blunt, just kind of doing whatever you want. He's saying that education is education is essential to civilization. It requires effort, discipline, remote goals, and we have a responsibility to guide it and direct that. So it's about about 90 years later, we act as if this ascendant progressivism has triumphed over a, a progressive, more of a classic classical idea in education. But this was a slowly adopted correct attitude based on ideological biases. And it also has a lot to do with the way that teachers prefer to think of themselves in their relation to students not necessarily what is actually in the best interest of students and schools. That no one wants to be seen and no one, no one wants to you know, inhabit the role of being a, a disciplinarian, authoritarian, um, you know, being you know, creating and enforcing rules. It's, it's just the way the culture has changed. Anyone, right, the entire mature generation that we want to see ourselves as facilitating this, you know, free and creative environment. But, of course, we know that education does not exist to serve the self-concept of teachers, how teachers want to think of themselves and feel about themselves. It's quite, really, it's quite besides the point. And strangely, we see that there's kind of this I don't want to get too confusing with these terms here and mixing them up. But in this way, we could make a, a critique that student, so-called student-centered is actually much more teacher-centered because it serves this, again, this preferred self-concept of teachers. In my classroom, we're you know, free and creative. And is that really being done because it's in the best interest of students? Right? I don't guide and direct my students. I let them you know, self-guide and self-direct because that's, that's the kind of teacher I am. Whereas teacher-centered is much more... I mean, there's a, certainly there's a larger role for the teacher because they have to guide and direct. That's why it's called teacher-centered. But also it seems almost paradoxically... Um, that it seems much more focused on the students. So in progressivism, uh, at least in this historical sense, we see student-centeredness. I don't want to mix that up. When I'm talking about progressive, I'm thinking you should be thinking student-centered and essential or perennial teacher-centered. So obviously this whole debate goes back a long time, not only back to where I'm tracing it, where we have this really clear debate between Bagley and Dewey, 
But even then, Bagley is still saying that this same debate has been going on for hundreds of years. And, but really only now, I think we see the practical outcome of these, of these excesses of the, the pedagogy that's really just gone in one direction or become one-dimensional. So the idea now is that we need to reinvigorate this debate, right? We need to tap back into that debate just because it's healthy, right? Heterodoxy is desirable in and of itself rather than just a notion that we're somehow now historically in possession of the, the one true way. There's also a possibility... Um, another risk in that we keep getting more progressive that that we're almost um, there's almost a a sense of reverence or even worship for these these figures and their ideas Um, just for example in student-centeredness from from Rousseau to Dewey to Freire but how do we think about the outcomes how much better is education now? And another way to ask and answer that is, how much better educated are people now? Now that we've had about a 100-year reign of student-centered dominance, or at least 75 years where all new teachers are being trained in this way. And I talked about this in, in Season 1 in the introductions, but this idea of inventing and reinventing a fictitious teacher-centered legacy that haunts and prevents progressivism from getting off the ground or from getting any traction. And I've described that all as a myth or as an illusion. So when you've had one system that's been dominant for a very long time, where not only teachers today, but the teachers who taught them and the teachers who taught those teachers going back further to a fourth generation, so the teachers who taught the current teachers who taught the current teachers when that system has been so dominant and yet we're not happy with the results or we're not seeing good results, right, that this promise of changing it and making it this way is going to make it, it's going to transform education into something so much better. And it seems that that promise has not been fulfilled. The promise of this student-centered, um, you know, radical re- reimagining and remaking. And what we see instead, and this is what can happen when you only have one theory that has so much sway and is so dominant or super dominant, I've used this term as well, that the only answer that is available is to say, well, we the thing is we're just not student-centered enough. And I'm thinking of Nietzsche here, and I want to call this the stinking corpse fallacy. Not, not not a very poetic turn of phrase. But the idea is, well, even though we've had our way for a long time and the results are not good, it's because we haven't had our way enough. We haven't been able to completely eradicate any other possible alternative. We haven't, you know, we haven't vanquished the teacher-centered way that it still haunts us. And we just... We can't seem to get rid of it. We, so the problem, the thing that's limiting the efficacy of, of, of 
of education itself, as education is basically, at least at the theoretical level, something like at least very close to 100% student-centered. I refer to this, you know, in, in strong terms as a as a cult-like or even a, like a slavish and uncritical devotion to these student-centered figures and their ideas. Okay, coming back to Begley. He suggests that a lot of these new educational theories are essentially enfeebling, that they don't make students stronger or into stronger, more capable, more more useful citizens. That much the opposite. That they are in the service of a new social order, and this runs the risks of indoctrinating immature learners, and that there are wide departures from established curriculum, what he calls curricular revisionism. Constantly we need to keep reimagining, remaking, redesigning. We need to keep injecting and infusing newer and newer and newer ideas all the time. Obviously, there's an activities emphasis in all student-centered forms. But also, as he says, that this the way that student-centeredness originally critiques teacher-centeredness is to discredit the exact and exacting studies. So anything that is too hard for too many people has to be jettisoned. And this whole point about delayed gratification, immediate and, and remote goals, that students should experience delayed gratification as part of an education that reduces freedom now to have more freedom later. So that's really, that's really all that's meant by immediate gratification versus delayed gratification is that, well, yeah, it, it might feel good to have a, a lot more freedom now and to kind of do what you want, self-guide, self-direct. But the, the fear that we ought to have is that this may lead to less freedom later. And I'll try to tease out the implications of that later. And there is a, an acknowledgement of that teaching in some ways has to be an almost disagreeable task because it does in, in parenting too i think of course there are you know new age postmodern tendencies and amongst the entire mature generation across parenting and teaching but the idea here is that you have to deprive complete freedom right you have to impose order and to avoid chaos so that in an orderly early life um, will ultimately lead to more freedom and more like too much too much chaos will will lead to less freedom or I'll, I'll, use, I'll use the phrase of net freedom how much total freedom that that you're going to have giving young or immature learners more freedom now may correlate to less freedom later Bagley, obviously critical of progressive education, which he believed damaged 
the intellectual and moral standards of students. And again, listing some of these, uh, these opposites, these dualism. The conflict may be indicated by pairing such opposites as effort versus interest, discipline versus freedom, collective experience versus individual experience, teacher initiative versus learner initiative, logical organization versus psychological organization, subjects versus activities, remote goals versus immediate goals, and the like. So the fundamental dualism suggested by these terms has persisted over the centuries. It appeared in the 17th century in the School of Educational Theory and the adherents which styled themselves the progressives. It was explicit in reforms proposed by, there's a list of names here, but the first name is Rousseau. And later, the, the last name mentioned here is the present outstanding leader, John Dewey, who came into prominence with an essay called Interest and Effort in Education. Obviously, based on what we've heard from Bagley so far, this idea that, well, if you want effort, then you just have to do things that kids are interested in. And so uh, imposing discipline to, to basically to demand effort in things that, that may or may not be interesting to be able to apply like considerable effort, high effort for things that are, that, that may not be interesting. They may not be what you want to do right now as a, as a learner. We have to believe in the importance of what we're teaching. If you don't really believe that, well, this is just, even if you're not interested, you have to apply yourself. You have to devote effort because the learning is so important that you can, in this sense, you can only really endorse, well, you know, we can't expect effort uh, from students if they're not interested in what they're learning about. This can only, this kind of idea, this student-centered, this, this core idea, it almost necessarily implies that you don't really believe in the considerable importance of what you're teaching and what you want them to learn. And I think that this also has an effect that, well, you know, if you're not that interested in what I'm teaching, then, you know, let's find something else that you can learn about in a more self-directed, self-guided way. This is an implicit admission that, well, you know, it's not really that important for you to learn anyway. Like, and there's almost a crisis of confidence in education that we aren't, we aren't willing, we're not really committed to knowledge or content or to a set or established curriculum. And so when you say, well, you can kind of learn about whatever you want to learn about, it's also saying, I don't really have anything that specific that's that important for you to learn. Okay, so coming into 
Now, this is both philosophical and theoretical, but also Bagley's focused on American education, too. Of course, as was Dewey. And it's a very important point about the upward expansion of mass education, which basically just means more and more people getting educated. Again, going back something like 90 years here, you're seeing a huge increase in how many people are going to schools. Right? It used to be much smaller, and it's become you know something basically you know universal K to twelve, something like a hundred percent of of people, and college too. Right? I mean that came later. So this upward expansion of mass education, first to the secondary, like it used to be. Um, certainly in Bagley's time, that basically everyone went to elementary, something like going up to grade eight, and a lot of people didn't go to high school or didn't finish high school. That actually, like a high school diploma was was, was something that would set you apart. So, the upper expansion has been an outcome, not alone of a pervasive faith in education. So the reason for this mass expansion is a massive amount of faith that we put in education. Largely, this manifests as the sense that education can, it can be the answer that it can, basically, that just moves society forward, in a, in a general sense, but also that it provides, you know, more opportunities for success and indirectly even for happiness. And it's also driven by economic factors. So, in opening to ever-increasing numbers, right, when you've got this, but you can think of it in terms of supply and demand, when you've got this growing or rapidly rising demand for something, something like education, and then there's a massive expansion, it's inevitable, according to Bagley, that scholastic standards should be reduced, that something that you used to do for a, a smaller group that now you're doing for basically everyone, that you have to find a way to accommodate everyone, right? And what he says is that, and again, I, it's not really meant to, it's not, it's not a pejorative, it's just descriptive, right? Or it's not a, a normative attack that's saying, well, you know, if you have all these people, then you're going to have more you're going to have more unintelligent people or you're going to have a wider variety of all different intelligence levels. Now, a lot of people who, like you know, in a previous historical period would never be in education, um, but would never, would never attend schools. Now they are. And so he's tracing this, 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 this expansion, what he calls mass edu- education, to ever-increasing numbers that scholastic standards should be reduced. And this, in his mind, is why theories that emphasized freedom, immediate needs, personal interest, which tend to discredit the opposite effort, discipline, remote goals, made a powerful appeal. 
so when you go from educating a, a small segment of the population to to then educating everybody, again, this massive um, demand, and how to supply, how to meet that demand. And basically, it, it basically it just would have been too hard to maintain the same level of you know, effort, discipline, and remote goals. Again, delayed gratification. Just to be able to accommodate that. Now, I'll make an economic um, analogy later. Okay, so uh, kind of recapping the main points here. Talk about effort against interest. Teacher versus learner initiative. I want to talk a little bit more about the collective against individual experience. So dependence that has furnished the opportunities for inducting each generation into its cultural heritage or the, it, its heritage of culture. So he's basically saying that we need to use this level of dependence in order to, even in the, the pre-modern society, right? That there's a, there's a heritage of culture, there's a cultural transmission, there's passing on of some kind of knowledge or wisdom from one generation to the other. He's saying in really, in, in pre-modern or like simpler social organizations that they just don't have as much, as much material, as much content, because they're. He talks about we need we need highly organized systems of education. That that are necessary, because we have complicated cultures, right? The more complicated culture becomes the more organized education has to be. So in order to pass on everything that was known to the younger generation in a, in a pre-modern society, hunter-gatherer, for example, it wouldn't take that long. It wouldn't take 20 years to pass on everything that they know just because they didn't know as much in terms of knowledge, not necessarily in terms of wisdom. We should add that caveat. So again, this kind of goes back to what I already said about it was easy if you don't have as much to pass on, it's easy to have a lot more child freedom in a in a pre-modern society. But in modern advanced industrial societies, again, that are much more complicated, there's a lot more to pass on. And so it basically leaves less space for that much freedom. That education has to be really organized. So the critique here is that the progressives imply that child freedom is new. Whereas, as stated, in a real sense, it is a return to the conditions of what he says, primitive social life. And then subjects against activities. This is kind of interesting because certainly we think of activities that occur within subjects. But I think the idea here is that the study of a subject isn't always going to be active, hands-on, interactive, engaging, etc. Again, trying to induce some level of interest in order to provoke effort rather than expecting or even demanding effort, regardless of interest. The progressives 
have tended to set the living present against what they often call the dead past. There has been an element of value in this position of the progressives, as in many of their teachings. Throughout the century, there have been, you know, protestants against formalism, and especially against the verbalism into which bookish instruction is so likely to degenerate. Present-day essentialists clearly recognize these dangers. So there can be, I mean, it is, he's just kind of giving the progressives their due, saying that, of course, it's true that education, if it's too strict, rigid, stiff, um, that it can be, you know, there is a risk of something becoming, you know, too too restrictive or even too boring or too reliant upon, you know, discipline for effort. That it's also true that education, the best form of education is going to be interesting. I mean, there's also potentially a problem of this idea of we need a, a charismatic teacher that's an interesting person that's getting kids interested in just in, in the social environment of the classroom. But yeah, he's saying that, that there is a danger that if that education can be too bookish. And the last point here about logical against psychological organization. Essentialists recognize that the organization of experience in the form of subjects involves the use of large-scale concepts and meanings. And it also requires that students master abstract concepts, especially at higher, higher levels, higher grades. But when you have, but there's just there's an inherent degree of difficulty with large-scale concepts or abstract concepts that not, not everyone in every generation is able to, to comprehend. Again, going back to this mass expansion of education, that what formerly used to happen is that based on intelligence or even just aptitude for school, is that we would, essentially, the education system would, you know, some people would opt out of it. And, uh, you know, to put it bluntly, education would weed out people who didn't really have much aptitude, again, the, or the, the capacity for large-scale, abstract, conceptual thinking. But when you have this mass expansion of everyone, that you still have those same people who are capable of the most difficult type of study, but they're also studying and learning it alongside with people who are really going to struggle with it immensely. So this goes back to his point that, of course, you have to relax standards. And that's almost never really been debated or, or litigated all that much. What all we do is when you have something like people have talked about educational inflation, is that like now the people who really succeed and excel in academic settings, they would continue and go on through graduate school or you know, you'd have to get a PhD to set yourself apart as being particularly well-educated, whereas a long time ago, a high school diploma would set you apart as well-educated. 
for okay, limited in the early years of childhood to the most simple and concrete problems must suffice. This, the essentialists, who do not quarrel with facts, readily admit. The tendency throughout the long history of progressivism, however, has been to discredit formal, organized, and abstract learnings in toto. Thus, in effect, throwing the baby out with the bath, and in effect discouraging even competent learners from attempting studies that are exact and exacting. So he's basically saying that there's a there's a, a prejudice against the hardest, most difficult subjects that are that require the most formal, organized, abstract thinking. Perhaps the the contemporary manifestation of this would be to discredit these things not as formal, organized, and abstract, and only for the most competent learners to attempt these exact and exacting studies that might just be dismissed or written off as being elitist today. That only only a small number of the, the best and brightest are able to do or to learn about this or that. So under progressivism, there's also this selection of the only things that most people can learn about, and this is curricular revisionism, about getting the hardest things, the hardest classes, hardest subjects, like just getting rid of them, getting them out, or, or diminishing them. There's a great section here, a great paragraph. What about failure? This is another one of the big questions. Uh, again, if we're going to have a, a mass expansion, how can we maintain standards? This is, I think that in a way, education sort of lost, and we as a society lost an opportunity to debate this. It just kind of happened that, well, we just have to reduce standards in education. There's no other way to educate everybody in the same way that we used to educate only a small number. We, we just had to dilute the product of education because we didn't have enough of it to to meet the demand. We didn't have enough supply. We had to water it down. But did we? We can, at least as a as a thought experiment. So another another great question is: What about failure? Is it true that we need to ensure that we pass or promote everyone? Because failing people is, I mean, again, it's just kind of generally accepted. It's taken on faith. Well, it's, it would just be seen as traumatic. Certainly in the context of a, of a therapeutic education setting, that it's, it's something that a kid wouldn't want or the parents wouldn't want. And so based on wants, um, you know, desires, inclination, um, or that it, that it's it's too much of an imposition. The essentialists recognize that failure in school is unpleasant and that the repetition of a grade is costly and often not effective. Again, Bagley being very fair here, saying, yeah, I mean, we have to recognize a lot of these things that the progressivists would say. On the other hand, this is the, the teacher-centered point, the, the point that... I, that it seems left out of the equation, lack of a stimulus that will keep the learner to his task 
is a serious injustice to him and to the democratic group, which has a stake in his education. So he's saying that failure is, in his term, a stimulus. It's, in a more modern term, I would just say it's a disincentive. Right? You have to incentivize effort by dis, like the possibility of failure disincentivizes it. That like that you might have to if you fail this course you have to repeat it. Like you're going to be in this class with the younger cohort that's currently your junior. That it's yeah it's uh, it's costly and often not effective. It, basically, it can be embarrassing. Or you have to redo the grade again. But he's saying, so, I mean, I don't think he's, he's not so attached to failure, like failure is some great thing, to, to, to fail and to repeat a grade. But if we're not going to fail people, then we need to, we need to find another stimulus, right? What else is going to fill in that gap? Say, well, you know, we're not going to fail students anymore. Like, okay, how do we have this high degree of responsibility or accountability to make sure that people are that students are taking school seriously because if we have this environment where there's in a sense in this academic performance sense consequence free then that is an injustice to the student letting someone Letting someone get away with giving less than their best effort, I think is what he's saying. That's why it's an injustice to that person. Because it's not setting that person up for success. But also, it's an injustice to, to us, the democratic group. That we have a stake in that individual's education. Again, we, if, if we believe that the things that a student has to learn in a certain grade are very important then they're important enough to not to advance, not to move on, not to graduate to the next step or stage or grade or level until you've met or met the requirements or mastered the important learnings at that point. Too severe a stigma has undoubtedly been placed upon school failure by implying that it is symptomatic of permanent weakness. Again, very fair, very even-handed. Yes, it's there's there's too much of a sense like there's basically just having to repeat a grade just means that you didn't have a good academic year. It doesn't indicate some permanent weakness, as he says. And he gives the example of Pasteur, um, and there this is almost the the academic version of the Michael Jordan example that he you know didn't make the high school basketball team and. Yeah, he ended up becoming Michael Jordan, the goat. So saying Louis Pasteur, one of the outstanding scientists of the present century, had a hard time in meeting the requirements of the secondary school, failing an elementary work of the field in which he later became world famous. So basically he went to school and failed and he had to go home for further preparation. So, you know, you fail and then you have to go back and rejoin and try again. And again, it, 
there's a demand of further preparation at home in, in, this, in this historical time, long time ago. Okay, so I've already talked about what are the essentials, I think. Actually, I'm not sure if I touched upon this. Uh, according to Bagley, there can be little question as to the essentials. It is no accident that the arts of recording, computing, and measuring have been among the first concerns of organized education. Every society has been founded upon these arts. Recording, computing, and measuring. So recording, really we're talking about reading and writing here, like just making records of anything. Computing, to me, certainly seems like it ha would have to be mathematical. And measuring also seems mathematical to me. Um, but yeah, different types of... I mean, really, I think we're talking about reading, writing, and arithmetic here. Every civilized society has been founded upon these arts, and when they have been lost, civilization has invariably collapsed. So he's saying the maintenance, maintaining civilization, a civilized society, certainly has certain essentials that are needed. I think today we probably just refer to these as probably instead of saying recording, computing, and measuring, they would all just be called different kinds of literacy, literacy, numeracy. So those are the essentials. Let me continue on with this, with under what are the essentials. Nor is it recognized, nor is it accidental that a knowledge of the world that lies beyond one's immediate experience has been among the recognized essentials of universal education. That at least a speaking acquaintance with man's past, and especially with the story of one's country, was early provided for in the program of the universal school. So this is something like the story of humanity, and also with a, with a particular emphasis on the history of one's own country. So he's just saying, yeah, these are the essentials. Literacy, history, like a national history and also a kind of a, a broader a broader history that's something like sort of a grand narrative, right? The, the story of humankind. I think that in some ways this is covered in... in and in, in, like in as a subject, geology, uh, anthropology. Investigation, invention, and creative art have added to our heritage. Health instruction is a basic phase of the work of the lower schools. The elements of natural science have their place. Neither the fine arts nor the industrial arts should be neglected. So basically what he's saying is all the things that civilization most depends on. Like, how did we become this great human civilization? Whatever led to our, you know, unmatched success as the dominant species on the planet, it's probably a good bet that that is essential. And there's reason to believe, in many cases, that a lot of these things are going to maintain civilization as opposed to, say, a return to the state of nature, complete collapse of culture, society, civilization. So preventing that collapse. 
this idea that we sort of act as stewards, right? Just another link in the chain in civilization. And that further developing and refining these things will only make our societies better. Okay. Essentialists on democracy. And this loops in interest and effort. And um, let me make just a, a general point that I think that Bagley might counter-argue against the, the sort of student-centered notion about interest and effort, arguing against Dewey, saying, well, what about citizenship? Right? What if you're not interested in, you know, being a good citizen? You're not interested in voting. That there are certain democratic things that we have to, we have to demand. What if the greatest generation wasn't interested in fighting the Nazis, right? Should they still have devoted the same amount of effort, whether they were or weren't? Or are some things just so important that it doesn't matter how interested you are in it? You ha just have to do it. And that if we recognize this as a virtue, then we have to start establishing it early on. Okay. The essentialists are sure that if our democracy is to meet the conflict with totalitarian states, there must be a discipline that will give strength to the democratic purpose and ideal. If the theory of democracy finds no place for discipline, then before long the theory will only have historical significance. The essentialists stand for a literate electorate. That such an electorate is indispensable to its survival is demonstrated by the fate that overtook every unschooled democracy founded as a result of the war that was, quote, to make the world safe for democracy. And literacy means the development and expansion of ideas. It means the basis for the collective thought and judgment, which are the essence of democratic institutions. These needs are so fundamental that it would be folly to leave them to the whim or caprice of either learner or teacher. So he's saying, he's almost taking an international perspective here saying if we are going to uphold and defend democracy from, let's just say, the enemies of democracy, uh, from totalitarian states who want to exercise their influence over us to essentially make us, uh, you know, under their totalitarian yoke, that, you know, we, we have to be willing to not just like willing and able to fight and defend what we believe is right and what is important. And that may mean literally to fight. And we still live in, a, I mean, this is written a long time ago, but you can see how relevant it is today. We still live in a world of nation states, some of which are expansionist and aggressive, right? 
that we still live in that world where countries want to take over territory. And, you know, and, and, and impose different systems. So, a, any society has to say, well, what do we believe in? If we really believe in it, we have to be ready to defend it, to fight for it. And so we're going to need people who are capable of, of fighting and defending. And I think unsurprisingly, Bagley put something like discipline as a, as a core value in teacher-centered education, where it would not be in student-centered education. So a society that is completely student-centered and that produces a student-centered type of graduate, he's saying... Well, he's, I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting. Will lack the discipline to be able to meet conflict with totalitarian states and to uphold democratic purposes and democratic ideals. And he's saying, if that happens, then we won't have a democracy anymore. We're, we're only going to have, like, democracy will only exist in history in the sense that it won't exist in the world anymore. Okay, so then he, he, gives a, he gives this five-point summary, and I want to kind of go through the entire summary here. To summarize briefly, the principal tenets of the present-day essentialists. One, gripping and enduring interests frequently, and in respect of the higher interests almost always, grow out of initial learning efforts that are not intrinsically appealing or attractive the things that are actually later going to be most interesting and most important to you, you're going to find that they grow out of things that you were basically forced to do or forced to learn about. Man is the only animal that can sustain effort in the face of immediate desire. Even though you, you don't want to do this, you'd rather do something else, we as human beings have a unique capacity to kind of say, well, even though I'd rather do that, I'm going to do this anyway. Sure, I'd rather be outside playing, but I'm going to do this instead. This is a, a unique capacity. To deny to the young the benefits that may be theirs by the exercise of this unique human prerogative would be a gross injustice. So when we don't... When we don't instill discipline we are denying people of their this unique human inheritance to be able to apply effort to something that's uninteresting to you at least in that moment at that time and we're denying them the benefits of this capacity this i i want to i want to just characterize it as a superpower I find this very boring, but I'm going to devote my my energy to it. It's uh, it's it's an incredibly powerful thing. I always, I mean, doctor and lawyer are always the the professions that I think of. And everyone, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm assuming here, but everyone who's a, a doctor or lawyer, sure, you, they eventually will specialize in something. But early on, you kind of have to learn everything, and that there are going to be certain things. That you, that are just a tremendous struggle to learn about, but nevertheless, you just have to overcome that and apply yourself to learning about it and 
passing exams. Yeah, but otherwise, you know, if, 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 if we don't inculcate students into this unique capacity of, of, of effort without interest, we're denying them the benefits of something that it's an injustice denying this powerful, unique, basically denying young people from coming into their own sort of superpower. It's, it's not a good thing. It can be sold as something that, that that's kind and tolerant and compassionate, right? No, we're not going to make students do things they don't want to do. I mean, the, the simplest word for this, usually this word, in, this word is used in parenting, not in teaching, but that children are spoiled. Let them do what they want. You don't make them do what they don't want. And that in some cases they can become dysfunctional adults. Okay. Two, the control, direction, and guidance of the immature by the mature is inherent in the prolonged period of infancy or necessary dependence peculiar to the human species. Now, we're not unique in this sense of a prolonged dependencies. Obviously, all kinds of different species. But this is peculiar to us, and there is this prolonged period of infancy or dependency, and the mature generation has its duty, its obligation to control, direct, and guide. And, as you know, he makes the argument that the, the more the more complicated and more complex society becomes, the greater the need for more control, more direction, and more guidance becomes. And on, in, a, in a way, unfortunately, that does leave less room for this unrestrained, unlimited freedom, inclination, and whim While the capacity for self-discipline should be the goal, imposed discipline is a necessary means to this end. So that we need to impose discipline and that eventually an individual self-discipline takes over and you don't need discipline anymore. But until they become self-disciplined, you have to impose discipline. Because you need, for a lot of people, you need to discipline them or you need to impose discipline, again, we, to a contemporary audience, and perhaps especially to a, a teacher listening audience, discipline and, and punishment might seem like the same thing. They are not, right? Punishment really has this, you know, cruel connotation. But discipline can just kind of mean being strict and firm without being cruel, right? You can be strict and firm also without being authoritarian, Right? That we have to see the shades of these things. We can't just say, well, discipline just means you want to be a, some sort of punishment-wielding authoritarian dictator. No, that we kind of have to unload this word discipline and see it as a good thing. So discipline leads to self-discipline. Perhaps, you know, this is maybe a little bit risque, but... Perhaps in the cases where imposed discipline never leads to self-discipline, um, that this might, in a way, be a feature of a, of a criminal element or of a criminal problem in society. 
among individuals as among nations. True freedom is always a conquest, never a gift. So you have to you have to become self-disciplined in order to then become truly free. Anyone who's just uh, like a slave to their own desire and cannot, for example, cannot deny themselves or cannot delay gratification. Someone incapable of that is, in this sense, not truly free. So I think there is a sophistication that to me is implicit in teacher-centeredness that sees this correlation between discipline and freedom. You need, self, you need to impose discipline to then later have self-discipline of students, of young people, and then to later come into the full inheritance of their true freedom that depends on these earlier building blocks of self-discipline and imposed discipline. Whereas I think in a less sophisticated form of student-centeredness, they're just seen as opposites. Are you going to have discipline or are you going to have freedom? Well, well, since freedom's a good word and discipline's a bad word, I want my students to be free. I want my classroom to be a free place. And it, this almost seems to completely miss the, the important point here. So let me take a step back here and make a couple just comments before I continue on the list here. So here, I just want to note that inclination is insufficient for true liberty. Again, I keep thinking back to Gramsci again, um, that there's freedom, but freedom without the cognitive repertoire, or without the fruits of education. It never grows into an advanced or a mature form of liberty. And I made this point about the mature, immature, the prolonged period of of dependence and um, the the obligation we have to, to direct and guide because and, and another big reason for this is the continuation even beyond the noting that the immature generation will become the mature generation so what we pass on to them is also important because it's a way for us to get to be torchbearers I think is the best phrase here Okay. And when you pass the torch, you're saying these are things that were passed on to me that the previous generation, generation said that I need to know. And now I'm passing that knowledge and hopefully wisdom onto you. And you now become the torchbearer and you are going to need to pass it on to the next. This is the way that we maintain uh, a rich cultural inheritance uh, a civilization and hopefully a thriving society as well. Going back uh, to the first point here about interest, interest and effort. Teachers who really don't know a lot about um, the, the actual content, that they wouldn't be considered content masters, it's very hard for them to be firm and exacting. And that a different kind of teacher who, well, it's more like when the system of education changed and doesn't, and, and no longer is really able to demand effort, 
even without interest, that that just becomes seen as a bad thing. And if you're only required to provide students with things that they find interesting, and therefore you don't really have to deal with this problem of effort, that that really appeals to a sympathetic or a therapeutic kind of teacher. That if we want to get discipline out of education, then increasingly it's also going to attract people who don't really believe that discipline is that important. Okay. Fourth, the longest point here. The freedom of the immature learner to choose what he shall learn is not at all to be compared with his later freedom from want or needs, fraud, freedom from fear, superstition, error, and oppression. And the price of this latter freedom is the effortful and systematic mastery of what has been winnowed and refined through the long struggle of mankind upward from the savage and a mastery that, for most learners, must be under guidance of competent and sympathetic, but firm and exacting teachers. So that's kind of what I was trying to get at in, in bringing up this, these terms of being sympathetic or empathetic and therapeutic. That this over-reliance on student-centeredness or this indulgence of student-centered ideology that the that all that matters is that your teachers are are sympathetic or that the sympatheticness uh, or i think to use a more modern term um to be therapeutic empathy social emotional that that has come to like occupy much more space so Bailey's talking about a balance here that, yeah, you can be calm, competent and sympathetic, but also firm and exacting at the same time, is that when you put a super premium on one of these features, it's going to say, well, sympathetic, like a teacher who's caring and loving, then that necessarily de-emphasizes being competent and being firm and being exacting, kind of demanding and demanding specifics. But again, this is, I think that this kind of idea is missing here, that there's a price that you have to pay now of less freedom for more freedom later. And you also have to understand that the things that you're learning, that, that there was already a huge price of freedom that's been paid as part of your inheritance, that this world that we come into is, there are just so many hard-fought and hard-won freedoms right, that have been wrestled from, from all kinds of different sources. And again, there's this, this important implication of the story of humankind. Essentialism provides a strong theory of education. It's competing theory, the competing school, progressivism, offers a weak theory. If there has been a question in the past as to the kind of educational theory that a few remaining democracies of the world need, there can be no question today. So again, he's making this appeal to democracy. If we're going to uphold democracy, 
then there's a, that's another reason why we need this discipline for strength. In addition to, again, the first point that he makes in, in summary is that people need to come into their own like individual, like their, their full freedom depends on this, you know, just not being a slave to your own desires. And so also we can't make education something that is just up to the whims and desires of individual teachers or individual students. We don't want teachers just deciding to teach whatever they want, whatever they think is important, because we don't want students to just learn about, well, just whatever. And we have to really believe in the importance of what we're teaching. And this new way of teaching that I keep describing as therapeutic, um, that certainly it's easier, and that has that relates to this mass expansion in education, that having a teaching environment that's easier or more conducive to more teachers. But again, there's a concern here that this focus on desire and feeling and doing what you want, um, and that there should be, basically that you should that you should feel good and that, that self-esteem is so important. There, the teacher-centered critique here is that this is, there's a risk that it will indulge what we might call like low or base pleasures, right? Inclination and the freedom to do what you want. And this can manifest in teaching in that it can be easy to just talk about things, bring things up. And again, I think of the therapeutic question as something like, and how did that make you feel? And it's, it becomes a really easy way to teach, right? To be a therapeutic kind of teacher that's kind of like sitting and listening and, okay, say more about that. And how did that make you feel? But certainly someone like Bagley would think it was just a huge missed opportunity to, you might say, to, to really actually educate. And that it just doesn't, it, it's not going to yield all of the important things. Again, the fruits of education. Sitting around and talking about your feelings is not an education in this sense. I am going to keep going and I'm going to continue on with Bagley here. And again, there will be some um, some things that I'm going to reiterate. So I've already talked about this, this expanding universal education and how that has caused a lowering of standards and also this, this resettling on the matter of failure. And in a, in a contemporary sense, this has a lot to do with Basically, the unquestioned hypothesis that education is a right. That everyone has a right to education. And, I mean, certainly it's, it's intuitive and it makes a lot of sense. And it is true, but it's also true that education is a privilege, too. And we don't want to have... There can be this an almost irresponsible and it's almost an outgrowth of a therapeutic culture that we say, well, we can't let anyone fail because uh, it will emotionally scar them, right? It'll cause some kind of complex 
in a kind of a psychoanalytic sense. And so we often defend some of these aspects in schools by just appealing to the fact that it's a right, right? That everyone has to go to school. Well, okay. Um, and everyone has to go to university as well, right? And I mean, potentially if education inflation continues, everyone will have a right to graduate studies too. And there's just this sense of, well, you know, that in a way we're going to have to make it easier. We're going to have to dilute it, water it down, or we're going to have to dumb down some of the learning. And that's also going to have the effect that the highest achievers are also going to be learning less because we've made the whole easier to accommodate everyone. And a lot of, you know, there's a lot of jargon and vernacular and teaching today that, well, no, you don't have to do that because of all these advanced techniques of your scaffolding, differentiating, and using universal design for learning. Um, there's no such thing as watering down, certainly not dumbing down. And it would just be an offensive thing to suggest. So because of market forces, supply and demand, and ingenuity to meet the demand, though this means lowering standards even below what is actually necessary. Thus, any new theory or philosophy that in any way supports this new mandate, we need to get everyone into schools and we need to keep them there and never fail anyone. So, new theories or philosophies in education that support that mandate to educate everyone, regardless of the quality of the actual education itself. Any theory or philosophy which justifies or rationalizes that policy, this universal education, education is a right, we have to educate everyone at every level. And, you know, if it's a right, it, it, it would be strange to fail someone in something that is their right. If something is a, is a privilege, then you can fail to obtain the privilege of something. So again, I'll reiterate this. And, and maybe there's been an overcorrection in education that, quote, the relaxation of standards has been carried far beyond the actual needs of the case. So he's saying that actually, well, we, we, can, we can relax standards and we can educate everybody. But he's saying we've actually gone too far. We didn't actually need to relax standards this much. But strangely, they've made a virtue out of making everything easier for everyone. And he's saying we could have kept higher, he's implying we could have kept higher standards and made greater demands of students and they probably would have risen to the level of meeting these demands. That we've actually, we've, we've overcompensated, we've overcorrected. That sure, maybe in an original form, schools were, were too hard to, to maintain the exact same standard for this massive expansion of uh, something like universal education. Again, because of the, the desperate eagerness to seize and cling to any theory that might lead to increased numbers entering and staying in the business of education. 
that those theories were retroactively defined as being virtuous and good and morally righteous. For example, the, the whole rhetoric surrounding that education is a right. Because of it, it's almost like the business of education itself is creating this propaganda for itself and saying that education is a right. So everyone has to come and stay in education as long as many people as long as possible. It's almost like a conflict of interest when you are running the business of education and you are saying, well, education is a right. It's not a privilege. Everyone. So education as a right is not a cause of increased education. Rather, the market opportunities to expand education as an institution itself creates a need for retroactive justification. For example, education is a right. Everyone needs to have access to education. Education has to be accessible for everyone. It might seem, these might seem like sort of grassroots slogans, but it's also education's, education justifying its own expansion and continuing its own expansion. So expanding and justifying the expansion. The market opportunity of education's share of the youth market may have caused this rights-based rhetoric rather than the advent of education rights leading to an increase in demand. So it's not that we, you know, we didn't educate everyone, then we discovered that education is a right, and then we had to start educating everyone. It was the perception of this really high value of education, especially as society becomes more complex and more complicated, that people started demanding and wanting more education. So it's about drawing people and keeping people, okay, in terms of a market that wants to expand and wants to retain its customers, in a sense. So the upward expansion of universal education, from universal kindergarten to perhaps eventually universal university, is subcutaneously both mutually co-constitutively justifying the new way, even as it is justified by the new way, where standards are lowered for retention to keep everyone in the system. Uh, that in turn causes a further lowering or leveling down. So we end up with educational theories that are, in Bagley's terms, enfeebling. While we need education to ennoble youth towards whatever is their charge. And going back to Locke, to draw them to whatever is uneasy. That we've lost that thread. And this is because of a loss of an essential balance in the fundamental dualism of countervailing forces in education. That is as old as civilization these two opposing theories and all their forms. And of course, I'm talking about this, the, the coincidence of my notion of teacher versus student-centered, TVSC. And again, teacher-centered, just recapping Bagley here really quickly, discipline, effort, work, remote goals, the classroom experience, logical organization, and teacher initiative versus a student-centered freedom, interest, play, immediate needs, personal experience, psychological organization, pupil initiative. That dualism persisted throughout the centuries and, as I argue, ought still persist today, even as we rapidly approach a strangle-held orthodoxy 
and I'll make this distinction again as I emphasized in season one that educational theory is very much one-dimensional and dominated by student-centeredness but actual educational practice that I would argue that the best teachers today are so because they have both both pieces working together that they are both teacher and student centered however paradoxical it seems to have two centers so again I'm, I keep kind of reiterating this this upward expansion idea um, of American education itself demanded theories to justify rationalize and make palatable the new approach And we can think of this in terms of culture as well as economics, right? You have supply and demand, so you have to expand. If there's a huge demand that you can't meet the supply, you have to expand in some way. So any educational ideas that facilitated that expansion were considered good, good theories, good ideas. And so if you just think of this in terms of the demand for a product, for the product of education, then you cannot meet the demand. The obvious other alternative, well, what are we supposed to do, not educate everyone? Like, of course, you know, we have to try to meet that demand. The only other thing I could think of, if we just think of it as an economic abstraction, okay, you have a, you have a, a, a rapidly rising, growing demand for a product. Everyone wants it. You cannot meet the demand. Of course, I mean, you can charge more. Right, you maintain the product as it is, but you just charge more money for it. Certainly, that's not what I'm. That's not what I'm advocating for. I don't necessarily think school should be more expensive. But what happened, really, at least from a teacher-centered perspective, is the other thing historically. Is basically you can add more water to it. You can dilute it. Right, this, the product. Thinking of it as a liquid. Okay. But then what you've done is you've changed the product. Like now you're no longer really offering the thing that was in such high demand. Everybody wants to be, to get a great education. Especially everyone wants their kids to get a great education. And so you can keep the same label on something, right? Calling it schooling, education, a high school diploma, a university diploma. But again, this brings back this inflation problem. The demand for the pure promise of what it can bring, right? People want the real thing. They want it to be, you know, still kind of rich and syrupy, right? But then it just, you know, again, if you dilute it, if you, and you water it down, or again, even dumbing down, you know, it's a pejorative phrase, will the, will the new customer base, will the new clientele, will they... Will they tell? Can, can they tell the difference? Well, if they've never had, if they've never had the first original thing in the first place, of course they can't. And that this becomes a cheap way to meet a, a rising demand. And the label seems the same, but you know the contents do not match the box or bottle. Not coincidentally. Education has become increasingly more attractive. I think this means education both as a, as a profession and 
schooling itself, has become more attractive to women and less attractive to men. Again, both in terms of teachers and students. Because, increasingly, it is a cooperative game that prioritizes the inclusion of everyone. And thus, not a competition that requires discipline, um, that ultimately, to some extent, does it excludes those who cannot compete right, at its higher levels. So the more the idea here, and it it may potentially be opened up for you know a a, a critique of being sexist. But the idea here is that the more purely cooperative and the less competitive something becomes, it will be less fun and less interesting for boys. That it, whereas alternatively, um, you know, if you make it more like you know, like team sports that are competitive and that, you know, as a form of play, it's more attractive to boys. Arguably. Certainly some would disagree. And the new theories also aim to discredit and condemn the other older theory. And in American market solutions, new and improved has been forever irresistible to willing customers. So largely... Not only is, are the new student-centered initiatives good, and partly good just because they're conducive to expansion, teacher-centeredness is also bad. And bad both in... I think originally it's seen as bad because it's too harsh and strict, and anybody who wants to be a harsh, strict, uh, imposing, disciplined authoritarian must just be a bad person. There's this moral critique... And also that, you know, kids sitting in rows and learning about things together is, you know, it, 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 it doesn't work. So it's ineffective. Again, this is the, the dual badness, the normative and descriptive critique, um, which, again, I've suggested I think is a, it's similar to a straw man fallacy. Actually, technically, it's a hollow man. Um, okay, another quote here. The complete abandonment in many school systems of rigorous standards of scholastic achievement as a condition of pr promotion from grade to grade and passing all pupils on schedule. So promoting from grade to grade, not applying rigorous standards, or even completely abandoning rigorous scholastic achievement. And, quote, the disparagement of system and sequence in learning and a dogmatic denial of the value in, even of any possibility of learning through, the logical, chronological, and causal relationships of learning materials. This has led to the enthronement of the doctrine of incidental learning. Incidental as opposed to purposeful. Right, that, that the, any student might learn about anything on any given day. Uh, again, depending on whim and caprice. Dewey is certainly party to this disparagement, to discredit or condemn teacher-centeredness or essentialism, perennialism, and the enthronement of progressivism. Quote, 
the wide vogue of the so-called activity movement. Yeah, it was in vogue a hundred years ago, people. You're not cutting edge. This is an outgrowth of the so-called project method. An outgrowth of the project method. So certainly that's probably more than a hundred years ago. It precedes the activity movement. The project method. Again, if you think that project-based learning is cutting edge, it's not. Which in turn was an effort to find, or to encourage the learner to find, problems of vital purposes. Hello, inquiry. Inquiry method, inquiry model. Find a, a vital problem, or a problem of vital purpose, right? Find a really important problem. Inquiry. Use the project method, project-based learning. And activities. Activity-based, active, hands-on, participatory engagement. So self-styled cutting-edge pedagogues are at best and in truth only utilizing ideas that are at basically 150 years old. And of course, Begley also has made very clear this point about child freedom. Child freedom is actually what we've had the most of if you just think of human history, that all the hunter-gatherer agrarian societies, pre-modern societies, um, you can use the word you can use the term primitive when in a non-pejorative sense, um, you know, just because that's the way the, just the word was used at the time of Bagley's writing. That it's, it's just, uh, it's a return to something that's closer to the state of nature, right? Um, that it was appropriate for simpler, like less complex, less complicated societies that didn't require sophisticated education to pass on all they know. Okay, continuing on. The project method and the activity focus, act the activity movement and activity curricula, activity programs have a central function um, in elementary and an important place in upper grades, but only as a supplementary function. So for teacher-centeredness, uh, activities are Basically, they're essential in elementary. But basically, um, as, ed as, as education progresses through the grades, it has to diminish. It has to become more supplementary. So I think he would say having an activity emphasis, an activities focus in high school, I think he would see as just kind of childish. That, that, that how are you... How are you transferring and transmitting all the important information, right? This idea that, well, we need to make things fun for these 17 and 18-year-olds that I guess the idea here is that, no, we need to be demanding more from them. And of course, one of the things that you'll hear when you talk to teachers and educators is there's been a conclusion and that it's been decided that lectures are boring. So if you're standing, I mean, if you're explaining something, something complicated that requires explanation, uh, you know, you're being a bad, boring teacher. I think this is largely debunked just through common sense of, you know, for example, people listening to two-hour podcasts, um, that any lecture can be boring or not. 
The backward-facing effects of educational inflation is that all grades become increasingly more elementary. So how can we take an activities focus that is would basically be the basically the sum total of kindergarten, and how can we bring that into you know universities, right? How can we get you know activities for you know university students in their seminars with their TAs? Quote. If the schools only provide an abundance of rich experiences for the learner, it seems, other things will miraculously take care of themselves. How can we make sure that kids are learning the most important things, um, you know, to, to a high degree, or that they're, that they're retaining what they're learning? Well, according to certainly Dewey and uh, student-centeredness in general, as long as you're providing an abundance of rich experiences ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. Everything else will miraculously take care of itself. And Bagley is just pointing out how flimsy this is. There is no reason to believe that this is so. Sorry, Dewey. Bagley notes that two changes occur. Both the ease-making in extant subjects, so the subjects that we can keep that are not too hard, we still need to make them easier, and the elimination of the exact and exacting studies any curricula that may be too hard and thus pose too much of an inherent impediment in the path of upward expansion. And so theories that discredit them, the exact and exacting studies, and justify their removal were and are seized upon by those responsible for the upward expansion of mass education and the business of education. What are the subjects that we can make easier and make them easier. And what are the subjects that you really can't make easier without just defeating the entire point and then get rid of those subjects? Note, every creature has an innate attention span. What we want to develop is a robust regime of expansive attentiveness. Not to accept the innate, but undeveloped capacity and operate within it thereby failing to grow it. If you just accept, well, you know, people have a 15-minute attention span, so never never expect more than 15 minutes of sustained attention. I think that accepting these limitations in a way seems to coincide with a student-centered approach, whereas teacher-centeredness would, would just, you have to demand more, and then that will grow and expand your attention. That it's not just some natural limitation that can't be overcome. Can be overcome. It must be. Because, you know, your parents are going to want you to go to universities and sit in three-hour lectures. And to be able to learn for three hours. Okay, but the notion that discipline, in its neutral, non-pejorative sense of control, not punishment, has eroded and been captured whereby the only sense of the word discipline acknowledged in Western pedagogy is pejorative, and malignant adults intend to inflict cruelty upon children, postman, astonishingly can insist on any of the forbidden teacher-centered emphases in education, or only deploy them in secret behind closed doors. So again, that's, uh, as I said, there are still lots of teachers whose style and uh, whose, whose approach, based on their pedagogy, is still very teacher-centered, or let's say half. So we have the secret curriculum that is alone 
keeping education alive. Very, so not because of pedagogy, but because we have great teachers who ignore um, kind of this student-centeredness and, and all of its um, kind of new age forms. And that these teacher practitioners who basically ignore a lot of the student-centered, you know, what, what they might consider nonsense or BS. Okay, I just got another note here about this, uh, about the supply and demand problem, about teachers as not being experts. And of course, I mean, you can have lecture halls that, you know, where you can have hundreds of students and this relates to the practical rise of a, of a therapeutic or as a charismatic student-centered type teacher who's not an expert. Because again, we say it's not necessary that the teacher be an expert because the teacher isn't passing on knowledge. The students can be kind of teaching themselves. So what we need is kind of a caring, loving, charismatic, fun type person. So I think that that first rose as sort of a practical necessity that if we're going to have this massive expansion, um, I mean, you can't have these big lecture halls in earlier grades, right? You need just, so this is kind of a, a kind of a theoretical, historical hypothesis that first we have this practical rise of these therapeutic charismatic types that it's easy to run a classroom that way, right? And just in being kind of fun loving and kind of free and easy and, you know, students can kind of learn about what they want to learn about and have a high degree of freedom. So it rose as a practical form, but then later a theoretical rise um, was attendant of a, a pedagogy to, to make themselves as necessary and basically to redefine what an expert is. An expert isn't in education isn't someone who really knows, like who has a deep understanding of what they're teaching about. It's someone who is an expert in the techniques of teaching itself. And that has completely revolutionized education. So the mass expanse levels all down rather than leveling up. And at least for Bagley, it seems to compromise the integrity of democracy, which may have to be fought for and defended and upheld. And before it can not only do we need like the strength to be able to to do that but we also need to know why and to kind of believe in why our society is worth protecting or defending from for example totalitarian expansionist states even dewey has been unable to answer what of enduring value we gain in giving up on serious mathematics and the classics even going back further, Greek and Latin. By giving up on exact and exacting teacher-centeredness and embracing student-centered models, the response, quoting again from Bagley, a new heavy emphasis on, quote, social studies, a primrose path of least resistance, altogether plausible and appealing. For example, quote, education for citizenship is a ringing slogan with limitless potentialities, especially in an age when high-sounding shibboleths, easily formulated, can masquerade as fundamental premises and postulates wrought through the agony of hard thinking. 
but they aren't. The, the things that we teach, they're not, they're not wrought through the agony of hard thinking, right? Our curriculum. He's basically saying our curriculum is just based on slogans, things that sound good. Just take a bunch of good sounding slogans that are ultimately meant to cover up the ways in which we've made education something that demands very little from students. And again, Bagley is certainly aware of the threat that this poses, that we, as the rest of society, don't want kids to get an easy education because it's not going to fortify them in, in the way that not just they need themselves to have better lives, but that we need too. Basically, it sounds not going to sound nice, but having a whole generation of useless people is terrible for everyone. And if it goes far enough, it could really threaten the collapse of, of a nation or of, of, of culture and civilization. I know it, almost, it sounds kind of melodramatic, but he's saying the stakes of educating versus not educating a generation of people are so high that we why would we think that we can just play around with it and mess around with it and just, well, we're just going to revise everything. Well, what if your revisions don't work and you destabilize our world? Like it's, it, we have to think of education as serious business. Not slogans that masquerade as serious. Slogans that sound good, but are hollow or illusory. And I think the biggest one today is critical thinking. And as I've indicated before, and I need to, I, mean, I need to focus more on critical thinking and to understand it more. But I think right now, I basically, I'm, I'm kind of agnostic. I just have this skepticism um, about it, even though. It's obviously a good thing. Usually when people say critical thinking, they just mean good thinking. They, they kind of, it's, it's the opposite of some kind of bad thinking. I mean, it could just be just the uncritical acceptance of somebody tells you something, you say, you know, the moon is made of cheese. Okay, yeah, the moon's made of cheese. Like, that just means gullibility, right? So not being too gullible. Um, but it seems also to have, like, much higher expressions than that, too. Um... So, but what I want to what I want to suggest is to situate critical thinking, really as a as a step or a stage that is basically, it's basically advanced. That you need to learn a lot, and you also think a lot. You start to think more and more. You're thinking about all the things that you're learning, and you're able to think back and reflect on all the things that you've learned. And you can like that's when you can have this these critical moments. Um, but this idea that you don't actually need to learn a lot, like in order that you think critically about the things that you've learned, that you just start to focus on like thinking about what you're learning as you're learning it. And we need to have, there's something about teacher centeredness that is like, no, learning has to be in a, in a strange way. Actually, it's good in, in early and like informative years that you have a high degree of faith and high degree of trust and that you are uncritical 
that you do actually uncritically accept your learning in something like that critical thinking can only probably be introduced in, in something like high school. because But the thing is that critical thinking is what we're all trying to get to. We're all trying to become great thinkers, right? That means you have a great mind, right? It, it almost just means like, like to be intelligent and to be well-educated. Like that's the goal that we're trying to get to. That's the telos, right? That some people um, become and they earn and they struggle this, you know, with, with becoming a critical thinker. But this idea, but it's, to use a kind of a stupid analogy, it's almost like dessert, right? Like that you have to get through all your other, you know, you have to you know, eat your vegetables first kind of thing. But this idea that we're just going to, we're going to take this kind of pure syrupy essence of something that comes at the end of a really long battle of education, of really just learning content, mastering uh, Showing content mastery, not necessarily expertise. And we're just going to start giving that, like, directly, somehow. Okay, so that's kind of a tangent, but I'm kind of continuing to think more and more about critical thinking. Okay, quote, this is kind of a direct attack on Dewey. Using the lower schools to establish a new social order. The proposal definitely and deliberately to indoctrinate immature learners in the interest of a specifically new social order and one that involves wide departures from that which prevails in our country is to be questioned. I'm going to just, I'm going to repeat this quote. Using the lower schools to establish a new social order. The proposal definitely and deliberately to indoctrinate immature learners in the interest of a specifically new social order and one that involves wide departures from that which prevails in our country is to be questioned. So Bagley is telling us 90 years ago, uh, you know, before it was too late, that any kind of cultural revolution uh, through education uh, is is, is, you know, uh, undesirable. Or at least needs to be questioned. Again, going back to um, one of the, uh, right from the very beginning, he talks about, herein lies an educational problem of the first magnitude which our educational theorists seem not to even have dimly sensed. So busy have they been, again, not thinking about the real educational problems, so busy have they been in condemning out of hand the economic system which has made possible an economy of abundance. Capitalism, free markets. Educationalists, for some reason, have this obsession with critiquing capitalism or, you know, advancing or promoting communism. Or, or in, this more, in this more general sense, they, just, they, want to, they want to create a new social order. And they're going to create their new social order through education. They're going to indoctrinate immature learners into a new social order that widely departs from what prevails in our country. They want to re-engineer society, right? They've reimagined it, and now they want to remake it. And Bagley's <laughs> being very restrained. He's saying, yeah, this needs to be questioned. So at the time that he was writing, you would imagine that, you know, that that patriotism and, and religion probably, put, like, 
basically uh, nationalism, pro-American patriotism, and um, like that would be a huge part of the prevailing order, and probably also Christianity. I think is certainly at this time would have been the kind of the biggest religion. Um, this is kind of like a, a newer, updated version of the old British for king and country. Um, America, no king. So, you know, just for for God and country, right? Being uh, patriotic and um, faithful, uh, I suppose. And education is basically saying, no, we're gonna get, we're gonna, we're gonna widely depart from the status quo. That we're going to remake society along in a sort of a totally new way. Again, this is something like a hundred years in the making, right? Bagley lauds French education as, quote, unswerving in fidelity to the ideals of democracy and still giving its first emphasis to clarity of thought and independent and individual thinking as the time-honored objectives of French education. It recognizes no less the fundamental importance of social solidarity in the defense of democracy. Again, this seems that what he's talking about is that, you know, comparing American to French education at the time, saying that, you know, they're not trying to strive for some sort of new revolutionary solidarity. Again, they want to defend democracy. They don't want to, like, they want to uphold the status quo. They don't want to attack it relentlessly. Again, we see the this, in some places this interchangeability where I say TC I always mean teacher centered but there's also a way in which it could frankly uh, be thought of also in terms of traditional and or conservative so what we want is not indoctrinated solidarity towards a new kind of solidarity to destroy the nation state as it is to destroy the status quo now this is almost kind of it's not particularly interesting because it's easy for each side to say the other side is just trying to indoctrinate students, right? SC would say you're just trying to indoctrinate students to, you know, to, to, to you know, love Jesus and to love America. And TC can say, well, you're just trying to indoctrinate kids to be against those things and to, like, upturn society uh, and just to, you know, to sort of be change agents but ultimately in the service of chaos so anyway back to the quote here Bailey's talking about clarity individual thinking and social solidarity but not social solidarity in the sense that all these people are getting together to fundamentally remake society right it's a solidarity not just with each other but a solidarity with culture and civilization right it's kind of a there's a historical continuity that I think is implicit and this, this mention of social solidarity. And I'm going to repeat this quote again from earlier. Quote, These needs are so fundamental to an effective democracy that it would be folly to leave them to the whim or caprice of either learner or teacher. So whatever a teacher feels or doesn't feel like teaching or whatever a student feels or doesn't feel like learning, the stakes are too high to indulge this, this, this kind of freedom that is a, 
a kind of a regressive kind of freedom that doesn't lead to full freedom and it's not conducive to liberty. Begley brilliantly articulates the paradoxical relationship the new way uh, has to freedom. By prioritizing freedom as driven by pupil initiative for immediate needs. So there's a student-centered individual inclination model versus a teacher-centered citizen liberty model. Now, and it's much harder to use an education system to create a kind of an ideal citizen because it's objective, again. It's much easier under student-centered model to ignore what a civilization requires of a good citizen and just to focus on the individual because individual, certainly in a kind of a postmodern and therapeutic sense, there's no, there's no definition for what a good individual is. Like, it's not, it, it can more easily kind of be destabilized. Where something like a good citizen seems a little more, again, firm and objective. But a good individual is so much more subjective. So you're able, in student-centeredness, by focusing on, by not balancing these things of using education to create good individuals and good citizens, that by de-emphasizing citizenship, you can de-emphasize the objective. And by re-emphasizing individuality, you can bring in more subjectivity and push out objectivity which just means making things more a matter of taste and resistant to any sort of clarity. Okay. Begley makes the case that should not need to be made, yet so antithetical to the entirety of contemporary teaching theory and a lot of teaching practice about true freedom. Okay, another great quote here. Now, obviously, the freedom of the immature to choose what they shall learn is of negligible consequence compared with their later freedom from the needs, uh, sorry, with their later freedom from need or want. Now, obviously, the freedom of the immature to choose what they shall learn is of negligible consequences compared with their later freedom from fear, fraud, superstition, and error, which may fetter the ignorant as cruelly as the chains of the slave driver. And the price of this freedom is systematic and sustained effort, often devoted to the mastery of materials, the significance of which must, at the time, be taken on faith. The vital distinction between inclination, again, mere inclination, the semblance of freedom in the experiential moment, and real or true freedom that is robust, it's beyond inclination and semblance and moment. This vital distinction cannot be overstated. It's as simple as the necessity to delay gratification. We've almost made a false idol out of immediate gratification, right? About this focus on being entertaining and making kids interest or at least finding what they're interested in to get them to 
devote effort to that. This is the logic of delayed gratification, which I think is well, highly substantiated. I mean, some even argue that that is the fundamental predictor of success. And you might further argue that success is an essential part of a, a, a broader sense of happiness. So this is the logic of delayed gratification. So it is the logic of civilization, aided, as Freud demonstrates, by sublimation. So it is no coincidence that the decline of certain educational practices as they pertain to discipline for freedom is a threat to democracy and thus a threat to at least the quality of civilization and even the death of culture. I know it must sound hyperbolic, um, but this is the way of, of really trying to emphasize how high the stakes are. Discipline deployed for the sake of a well-developed regime of attention enables freedom. I keep using this frame, regime of attention. It's from Simone Weil, uh, whom I'll get to in a later episode. And so the universal agreement within an, an orthodox pedagogical bubble cannot more fervently agree with itself that more freedom and openness and creativity earlier on cannot but be good. But this is false. You're borrowing all of this freedom and openness and creativity. You're borrowing it against the future. That we at least have to kind of reopen the question that by having uh, reasonable limits on freedom and openness and creativity early on, in order to have much, much more of them and in better forms much later on. So it's not just that students need to learn to delay gratification. Teachers do too. It's not very gratifying to, you know, to be a strict disciplinarian and to wield authority in kind of an effective way with this knowledge within yourself that like one day this is going to pay off. One day this student is going to thank me for pushing them to really be and to do their best. It's much more gratifying for a teacher to be a charismatic or to be a therapeutic. To just try to be fun and entertaining and have these, you know, moments of excitement uh, that certainly seem pleasing to, you know, admin and to parents. And to just focus on, you know, to focus on their feelings, to focus on their hearts rather than their minds. And it brings me to kind of a, just a, an anecdote aside that, you know, during my teacher training, my, my B.Ed., there was a, you know, a PowerPoint slide up on the wall, like an introductory slide, and it said, you know, and I think I had even seen it posted on a, you know, in the, in the education department, an education of the mind without an education of the heart is no education at all. And the quote was attributed to Aristotle, I think. <laughs> and I think I said, like, you know, this, this is not an Aristotle quote, obviously. Uh, and I, I mean, I had looked into it, but I also just knew. And, you know, I, I kind of went so far as to suggest that the, the misattribution of the quote itself suggests a problem of the education of the mind, of, of whoever put it there. A little bit harsh, maybe, but... Okay. 
Back to Bagley. We have to have a certain amount of confidence to, to think that, no, delayed gratification, it's just sort of a, it's a fact of life and it's a good one. It's not going to cause some psychological complex. It causes competency. Again, you can't really understand what's meant by therapeutic culture unless you understand this fear to impose anything, like even imposing discipline, you know, rules and expectations. If you don't just let people do whatever they want, they're going to become repressed and they're going to develop these psychological complexes that they're going to need therapy for later on. We need to see people as anti-fragile. And thus there is no possibility of a robust heterodoxy whereby a kind of economy is posited in that a narrow, not open, focused, not free, discipline, not whims, may seem to deprive freedom by capping inclination. But in truth and in the end, those who follow this path experience more net freedom in their lives. And while it stands to reason that what young people experience and practice early on will become stronger, it's not always so. Being unrestrainedly free and unfocused, undisciplined, and practicing creativity can have the inverse effect of much less freedom later in life. Okay, I think the point is made. So, yeah, this, this kind of tangles up this whole paradox of, you know, if you're less free now, you'll be more free later, right? That you have to take away and withhold freedom in order to uphold freedom. You do not want to max out on freedom and happiness and expression and creativity early on, that it could spell disaster. So inclination is, to freedom, a false friend. Doing more of whatever it is you want early on is an indicator of sharply delimited future prospects, choices and paths, and freedom in its mature sense. So delayed versus instant gratification. Doing less of whatever you want earlier on in your life is a better predictor of success. Well, what about happiness? It's unclear. And again, success and happiness, they have so many different definitions, right? All, um, with, with all different, you know, possibilities. Touching on therapeutic culture a little bit more here, thinking about Philip Ray for a moment. When did schools become therapeutic, hospital-like institutions, rather than academic, church-like ones? Not existing to make people smarter, but happier, better adjusted, socialized. Consider this quote, I love hospitals. If I could spend the rest of my life in a hospital, I would. Because when you're in a hospital, you have zero responsibilities. And there's always a doctor. So anyway, bringing this back to TVSC. A student-centered and therapeutic, individually focused education that resembles play. It's meant to be happy and ostensibly offers a lot of free choice. Is contrasted to a teacher-centered, academic, citizen-focused institution. Okay, not the therapeutic individual, but the academic citizen. And instead of a focus on happiness, as in SC, DC is focused on success, a rigorous curriculum rather than play. That is, again, exacting and painstaking. 
I'm going to repeat this quote yet again. These needs are so fundamental to an effective democracy that it would be folly to leave them to the whim or caprice of either learner or teacher. Again, certain, obviously, essentialism is focused on these essential things that we cannot fail to do as teachers, as educators. And whims are what we follow in pupil-initiated projects, right? Like student, like self-learning, self self-teaching, uh, autodidacticism. Okay, another incredible quote here from Bagley. I know this is going on quite long, but I really believe it's worth it. Quote, American educational theory long since dropped the term discipline from its vocabulary. Today, its most vocal and influential spokesman thrown the right, even of the immature learner, to choose what he shall learn. They condemn as, quote, authoritarian, all learning tasks that are imposed by the teacher. They deny any value in the systematic and sequential mastery of the lessons of the human race, the lessons that the human race has learned at great cost. They condone and rationalize the refusal of the learner to attack a task that does not interest him. In effect, they open wide the lines of least resistance and least effort. Obedience they stigmatize as a sign of weakness. That is, they laud, as well as condone and rationalize the refusals of the learner. All this they advocate in the magic names of democracy and freedom. So you see another problem here is that both sides want to claim that they're upholding democracy and freedom in, in very different styles. So getting rid of discipline as both a term and as an idea, and, okay, this idea, if we had to bring back in this idea of transmission, of what one generation has to pass on, what the mature generation is responsible for imparting to the immature generation. And this has to include, again, the story of mankind, the lessons that the human race has learned at great cost, right? as well as the freedoms that have been hard won. So the only way to really understand this massive story of basically of humanity as a success story um, based on, I mean, you look at the world today and everything that we have, if you can be appreciative, if you can experience gratitude, but it's such a big story, right? That he's saying what you need, it's so complex and complicated that you need uh, a, a, a real structure. So that's why he says the systematic and sequential mastery of the lessons that the human race has learned at great cost. And again, there's this, there's basically just a rejection out of hand of these terms, right? Instead of coming to grips with their necessity and how to use them properly and not abuse them, discipline, authority, obedience, that these are all good things. There's no reason to have this, this pronounced prejudice against these words. These are not bad words. Only to a therapeutic. These are bad words.
again, I'm, I'm often starting to, to, to use this word charismatic along with therapeutic too, that why do you need discipline and authority and obedience? Why can't you just be more entertaining? Why can't you be more charismatic? Okay, I mean, is that how we want to focus on how we develop the next generation of new teachers? Just sort them, just take all the most charismatic people in society? Is that a great marker of a great teacher? I mean, I don't know. Certainly it's unclear. I don't even know if the question's really seriously been asked. And also therapeutic, that it's just kind of like just loving and caring and supporting, right? That it feels good, right? And again, like, that it's just, that it can't be too hard. That there's just this, 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 this yucky you reaction to discipline, authority, and obedience that I don't think all teachers have, but teachers actually learn. Again, we've had a hundred years of student-centeredness that is very much anti-teacher-centeredness. And teacher-centeredness would, would not consider these things as bad. And so student-centeredness defined in terms of not being its opposite. Because we've already talked about this false dichotomy between discipline and freedom. Right? You impose discipline, that leads, leads to self-discipline, and that leads to freedom. Without some baseline of discipline and authority and obedience, teacher center will say, you can't have freedom and you can't have democracy. In its broader sense. But when freedom and democracy are used in the defense of education, they're only thinking about it, the inside to education. right? They're thinking intra-educationally, that we want free and democratic-styled classrooms. Right, that we take these big models like you know freedom and democracy and we put them in the classroom. Everyone gets a say. You raise your hands and vote on things. But again, there are massive demands from a democracy in terms of an individual nation state in the world. Right, that we have to serve them in their bigger sense, like capital D, capital F, democracy and freedom. That Bagley would say, only like a real like an exacting, like a basically a serious education system. Only that can uphold a democracy, can maintain a, a strong, healthy, robust society. We should invert contemporary or postmodern claims about the right to education, one that succumbs to a regressive and modern child or student worship. Thinking of George Carlin. Uh, talking about this therapeutic-styled child worship. Among the essentials of the essentialist, then, is a recognition of the right of the immature learner to guidance and direction, and the gifts of control and discipline. When these are needed either for his individual welfare or for the welfare and progress of the democratic group. Saying, if we have this this too progressive style of education, we're not acting responsibly because we're not guiding and we're not directing. And what happens is that we deprive young people of these gifts, these gifts of civilization, the gift of control, self-control, the gift of discipline and self-discipline. Because 
they might not be interested in learning self-control and self-discipline when they're kids. But they're going to need them later. And they're going to be thankful that they have them later. And so are we as the democratic group. I'm reminded of this quote. I am indeed a king because I know how to rule myself. A generation of young people who grew up learning how to rule themselves, right? That's desirable. Society can only have so many people who are not under control. And the child has always been in many ways inclined to whims and resistant to control. Well, he doesn't like that. He doesn't like being controlled or guided. So just let him do whatever he wants. No, no, we can't, we can't possibly do that. Okay, and the child has always been in many ways inclined to whims and resistant to control, guidance, and discipline, and thus also to consciously directed human education. Yet it has been necessary and vital since, if not just before, the dawn of civilization, that our children, that for our children to be quote, free from control, guidance, and discipline, is an impulse that has to be checked. Yet there is this, there is this feeling that we have, it is a natural feeling, that like, yeah, it sucks to always be controlling and guiding and disciplining. Like, it's being the bad cop, and the good cop, bad cop, applying that to the parental situation. Typically, a mother and father. That, you know, if one party, let's say the the father or the dad, stepfather, uh, whatever, is the one who's responsible for, like, the control and the discipline, then you're always kind of being the, the bad cop, even for trying to guide them in the right direction. That you're the bad cop. It sucks. Nobody wants to do that. But but you rise above your own desire. Like, oh, I don't want to always be doing this, but, you know, there's just a sense that it's important. And if I don't do it, who will? It's It's too easy to think about, you know, like, to think about what kids want or what they like. And then just to give them what they want and let them do with what they like and you know for student-centered teachers too it's again it teachers love it because it's easy for teachers but the teacher-centered critique is that it in its extreme forms it can be if it's too therapeutic it's too indulgent and it's too decadent and again it presents a risk not necessarily a threat to democracy, um, but in an aggregate sense, maybe. Quote, an effective democracy demands a community of culture. Educationally, this means that each generation be placed in possession of a common core of ideas, meanings, understandings, and ideals representing the most precious elements of the human heritage. I think it's very likely that you know, that common core, the American curriculum is, um, I think maybe it's no coincidence that Bagley is talking about, like, maybe that phrase, maybe he coined that phrase is all I'm suggesting here. Anyway, in this line, he's emphasizing the importance of transmission. 
and our commitment to transmission of, of, of letting young people come into a full inheritance of a culture and the culture of civilization, then we have to believe that it's important and worthwhile. Otherwise, why would we transmit it? There's almost, it almost goes hand in hand that if you basically think the world is an incredible place full of amazing things and amazing places, then you want to pass it on and you want to serve its continuance. Only, now you can certainly be, you can, you can attempt to exonerate yourself from this obligation of cultural transmission. Uh, again, which is teacher-centered and hard. It has to be structured and systematic. It's, it's hard, I think. I really believe it's harder to be a teacher-centered teacher. But if you just say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to transmit culture and, you know, just kind of continue on the, the status quo of civilization as opposed to living in nature. You can retroactively justify basically bad, lazy, sloppy teaching by just saying, you know what? Culture and civilization aren't that important anyway. They don't really need to be passed on. So I'm just not going to do that when I can otherwise just do whatever I want or when I can actively just critique it and say that it's bad. Again, going back to this quote right, right at the beginning from Begley. Condemning out of hand the economic system. I'll read the quote again. An effective democracy demands a community of culture. Educationally, this means that each generation be placed in possession of a common core of ideas, meanings, understandings, and ideals, representing the most precious elements of the human heritage. Now, it is true that this, this, is, this is an overlap between essentialism and perennialism, but it means, yes, each generation we have to do this thing, where we pass on the most precious ideas, meanings, understandings, and ideals. But we're also able to negotiate or to renegotiate, well, what are the ideas, meanings, understandings, and ideals that are most precious? How we appraise them in terms of how precious they are, that is something that, like, the canon is constantly being reconsidered, for example. But we also want to be careful not to change it too much because, again, we were given this inheritance by the previous generation, and so we have to pass it on. It doesn't mean that we have to pass it on exactly the same way, but it does mean that we do have to pass it on, that we have, we have an obligation to transmit simply based on the fact that we got this inheritance from someone else. It's not, it's, it wouldn't be responsible for us now in the transmission position Right, to be the transmitters, not the receivers, for us to just squander the whole fortune, the family fortune, right? thinking of inheritance in that sense. Now this, of course, is the inheritance of human heritage. So this leads into another, uh, a bigger problem about, you know, at this time, all Bagley was arguing for is not emptying out all of the great things that education does. And he was seeing on the horizon, I think, this a creation of a vacuum. That there's just this ideological vacuum. Um, or at least if we empty out all this content, then he's just focused on what we're losing. 
right? This is what we would call like the, the negative side of the problem. That, well, if we empty out education of all of these, all these kind of virtues and, and, and content, right? Then it's just going to be empty and hollow, right? Uh, it's just going to be kind of fluffy and, you know, it's just, what is it going to be? I think that's what he was seeing. He was not seeing a hundred years into the future and thinking, well, what are the potentially dangerous things that it can be filled up with again? I think that maybe he could have foreseen that. It's just not clear from, from these writings that what we're doing here is creating a vacuum and an empty space and that that can be filled with something really terrible. He was just he was just worried about losing education as what it was. He wasn't really foreseeing that it could become something, you know, destructive. So I'll talk more about that the this whole the, those these different stages or phases of losing teacher centeredness and creating an empty space and then it becoming uh refilled with something else. Um, it's kind of a sim similar structure to the way you'll talk about uh, Nietzsche and the death of God, that, you know, that humanity became irreligious, right? That God is dead and looked to something like science to be able to fill in the gap, but that it couldn't. And so, you know, where are we now kind of thing? Maybe still trying to, 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 to erect the God of science and still failing. Okay, continuing on now. And the attack that we see now is a root attack upon those elements, indicting them as not only non-precious, but as evil. Racist, sexist, colonial, patriarchal, white, male, cis. Thus placing in possession a new core of ideas, meanings, understandings, and ideals, representing new elements for new human heritage. That is, to, to completely... Uh, reimagine and remake that human heritage that's being passed on as a historical disruption it's a cultural revolution it's basically yeah it's emptying out that inheritance and trying to replace it with something else all within a single generation right not in a kind of a gradual thing not in a gradual way and implicit in that has to be typically a top-down decision that what has been passed on is doesn't have any value or doesn't have any value anymore or isn't relevant anymore so we're not going to pass on the things that our fathers passed to us that their fathers passed to them going back and back and back and back we're we're not going to make another link in the chain we're going to start a new chain so to speak right we're we're restarting this is this is the the beginning of a new human history and uh you know this is a new dawn the dawn of a new and a different kind of human being interesting to know that conservative traditional educational systems have been without exception they've been recipients of sweeping reforms following cultural revolutions but they haven't been their authors Usually it's not, it's not educators who are typically who have been the ones making revolution, but, but when revolution occurs, radical changes, of course, schools are remade. But usually like 
the education system is the thing that a revolution acts upon. If we just look back through a cursory glance through history, at least this is my hypothesis, that typically it's not that the educational system itself is the one that's radically reforming society. That, that typically they're kind of, they might be more like militaristic or more political in the sense of remaking society. You know, like the, yeah, like, the, like, like a coup d'etat, for example. So it's a very strange thing to think of education itself as being the, the catalyst or the impetus that education is the thing that's driving a change. Again, it's the actor rather than being acted upon. It's, uh, it's kind of curious. Having been openly declaring their intentions to create a new social order, going back to Dewey, uh, for a revolution, again, all these ideas, any change word is a good word in education, right? Radical, revolutionary, reimagining, remaking. And of course, as I was saying, words like uh, discipline, authority, and obedience, those are bad words, right? Radical revolution, th those are good words. It's, um, yeah, it sort of just speaks to the state of education. Okay, last point. Uh, at the end of this uh, this reading on Bagley, um, again, this is all circa 1940, uh, there's a, there are questions for reflection. Um, you know, I think that probably this reading has been used in some education schools, and I think that Bagley should be mandated as always a kind of a counterbalance to Dewey, if I had my druthers. Uh, so I'm looking at the, the third question here. How might Bagley respond to critics who charge that a tradition-bound, essentialist curriculum indoctrinates students and makes it more difficult to bring about desired changes in society? Um, so I think first he would say that in many ways um, an essentialist democracy, uh, sorry, an essentialist understanding of education, it's not really indoctrinating. Like for example, like the three R's, like does anybody really think that these basics are, you know, are, are an indoctrination, right? Like literacy and numeracy. But I, I think, putting another way, thinking of this in terms of, you know, the old essentialist that way that's tradition-bound, we can just, it's easy just to formulate this in the opposite way. So what about, Okay, so an old traditional, uh, you know, indoctrination, uh, you know, anti-social change, right? It's not what teacher-centered is. And we could just, just as easily ask, well, does a new anti-tradition re-indoctrination for social change program, is that necessarily good? That it's, the idea here is that it's, it's neither good nor bad in their relationship to social change. But I think the ultimate answer to the question, I've been, you know, been long-winded here, is does it make sense to think about we're indoctrinating students into a Western tradition running, you know, from Socrates to Shakespeare uh, and beyond? Um, so, and again, if we're not indoctrinating students uh, into some sort of you know, into an appreciation of Western culture, right? A reminder of the phrase, the glory that was Greece, the grandeur that was Rome. 
and uh, you know, and and beyond, like the entire you know, the entire history, the entire story of civilization in general and Western culture in particular. So sure, I mean, okay, we can we can think of the alternatives. We can empty that out, and then what's going to fill its place? Like, how are we going to do better than Socrates and Shakespeare? Candy and D'Angelo? Is that what we should be basing educational curriculum on in order to bring about desired changes in society? And if so, what reason do we have to believe that that is going to make education better? That's, that's going to improve society and enrich culture and um, and improve the course of civilization. Okay, so that wraps it up over two and a half hours. Um, but obviously, uh, Bagley is, I think, very important. And uh, like I said, he is the anti-Dewey. You, or you, you could consider him to be sort of the antidote to Dewey. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why he's so important. But also, I just think that the way that he articulates what is now radical counterculture pedagogy i mean that's that is the the really powerful challenge to the dominant way of thinking right now and that it's so clear and intuitive and i think it so obviously exemplifies the balance that we want to see in bringing teacher-centeredness back um into its into a, a proper relationship with student-centeredness. So again, going back to season one, this introduction, is that right now we've got this dominant, super dominant in pedagogy and theory and just sort of dominant in teaching practice, especially with younger teachers. And we expect that, that trend to continue more ideological purity in student-centeredness and in progressivism. So... Um, you know, the story was that teacher-centered used to be uh, dominant with student-centeredness in a subordinate or supplementary position. And then I think the two became even. And then student-centeredness passed it, and teacher-centered was merely supplementary. And now I think teacher-centeredness is dwindling on this edge of being supplementary or not, not being part of education at all. And I think that the literature and the ideas are too important, too forceful. And that it would be a great loss. And when education becomes weak and unsophisticated itself, then society does too. So we need to bring, at least bring teacher-centeredness back into a firm position as a supplementary in relation to dominant student-centeredness. Especially, I think it's, it's already basically there in their teaching practice, but to bring back teacher-centeredness as a supplementary theory, as, as however uphill that may be. And, you know, an ultimate goal would be to bring... Well, it's hard to say what the ultimate goal is. Um, but as, as sort of moderate mid-range, mid to bring teacher and student centeredness back into something as, as even as possible in both teaching practice and in theory. Which may or may not be possible, you know, in, in my lifetime. But I suppose we'll see. 
and think of it in the most practical sense. Something like um, teacher training programs that were explicitly, you know, open to to student and to teacher centered professors and approaches, and and as well as teachers. And again, just to have this to have this new a new kind of teacher training program and a new kind of teacher that is not basically indoctrinated into the orthodoxy of the student-centered. That is a sort of allows and open and, for example, discipline, authority, and obedience. These are not bad words. I don't know if anyone has said that in a teacher training program in a hundred years. And it's just obviously true. And obviously true things need to be said, right? So I think that, for example, a teacher-centered education training pilot program and see how they do as teachers. Um, I don't know, that's just, uh, again, thinking about possibilities, thinking about goals and, and where to go and what to do. Okay, so I'm going to wrap it up here. Uh, thanks very much for listening to Unchanging Education with Dan Clements. <laughs>